Welcome to the Thrive Theology Podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Bethany. We're two Christian women who aim to be grounded in the Word and understand how it applies to our lives. We're passionate about making Christian theology accessible for every woman and equipping others to seek an intimate relationship with Christ. Stay tuned as we dive into today's topic. Hi there, welcome to today's podcast episode. Today we are going to be talking about archaeology. Um, specifically, we're going to be discussing three events in the Bible that have archaeological backup. Some of the very first episodes we did on the podcast were about proving the Bible's validity through fulfilled prophecy. Um, in episode five, we talked about proving the Bible um, with historical fulfilled prophecy. And in episode seven, we talked about proving the Bible with messianic fulfilled prophecy. On this episode, we're going to be talking about proving the Bible's validity with extra biblical sources, specifically that of archaeology. So we're going to be looking at some different ways that archaeology has proven the Bible as historically accurate over the years. Before we get into it, um, we just want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast in whatever app you're listening in. That way you never miss an episode and every um, week the new episode is downloaded right into your podcast feed. And for more information on this episode or any other episode we've done in the past, you can always check out our website at thrivetheology.com. So we're going to start with some of the archaeological evidence supporting the Israelite conquest of Canaan. So to set the scene, this is after the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the desert. Their time was over and God was calling them into the land of Canaan. Now, of course, we know that as they went through, they drove out and killed the people who were living in the land. Um, And as they go through, the Bible records three separate cities that they actually burned. So a lot of the time we think of just a complete slaughter for the entire land. Um, But that's not exactly what happens. And so if we look at the three different cities, they're Jericho, which is the first one. You probably remember that's the one where the walls came down. Um, Not particularly with purple Slurpee, um, but by God's command. The Israelite army then went in and killed the people still remaining and burned everything. They weren't allowed to take anything from the city of Jericho and they burned the entire thing. The same thing happened with Ai. You probably remember the story of Achan and how he kept treasure for himself and God judged him and his household for that because they were told to burn and leave and burn everything that was in the city. The same also happened with the city of Hetzor. So during archaeological excavations of these three cities, when you go down in the layers, you can actually date them using pottery. And there was, during the time of the Israelite conquest of Canaan, there's a burn layer um, where they would have gone through. And it's really interesting because after that, there's strong evidence that a city is occupied by Jewish people if there's a lack of pig bones in the garbage pile. That's actually, garbage piles are awesome ways to learn more about um, a city and their daily life. And so when, if you don't find any pig bones, that's a pretty strong indicator that um, Israelites were living there. And so after this time period, during the time when the Israelites would have actually occupied um, these cities, we don't find pig bones in their garbage piles, but below that we do. So often during discussions of the conquest of Canaan, the term, um, terms like total annihilation or completely wiped out or kill everyone who breeds um, as commands of God for this conquest are used. 
However, only three of the cities that the Israelites conquered were actually burned. The rest of the cities and the inhabitants were just driven out. And this was really um, a way of God providing for the Israelites because after all, they needed places to live. So in this way, the um, cities that they were going into occupying the lands, um, infrastructure and fields and all that sort of thing would be preserved. And this also fulfilled um, God's promise to Israel that they would harvest fields they didn't plant and live in houses that they did not build and that sort of thing. There are also times in the Bible when you're reading and um, God says, you know, to totally destroy or totally annihilate the cities. And this kind of language is actually very common. Um, it's commonly used by the ancient Near Eastern historical accounts when discussing battles. This is not something that is specific to Israel, but it's something that other nations would also use when they were referring to um, how they took over enemy nations and cities. The next evidence we're going to talk about is King David and his kingdom. So oftentimes we read the Bible, King David is one of the heroes of the Old Testament, so he's pretty big in our mind. Um, but there's a really neat example that we have of his existence in extra-biblical archaeology. So some background. A stella is a type of monument. It's usually made out of stone or wood, and it was frequently used in the ancient world to commemorate big events, military victories, funerals, etc. It's similar to what we do today when we erect a statue with an inscription or memorial. The Tel Dan stelae are fragments of a stella that were discovered in 1993 and 1994 in northern Israel by the archaeologist Abraham Biron. The stella fragments were discovered in the Upper Galilee region, which is widely believed to be the ancient Israelite city of Dan, which would be after the tribe of Dan. The stella dates back to being inscribed more than 100 years after David's death or in the 8th or 9th century BCE. So the Tel Dan Stella, inscribed with Aramaic, commemorates the military victory that an Aramean or Syrian king had over, quote, the king of Israel and, quote, the king of the house of David. It says that the pagan god Hadad gave the Syrians or Arameans victory over Israel and Judah. This fragment does not name the specific kings involved in the battle, but based on the dating and all that sort of thing, most scholars think that the attacking king was Hazel of Damascus, and the kings of Israel and Judah were Joram and Ahaziah, respectively. So the fact that the king of Judah was described as being the king of the house of David shows not only that David existed, but also that he had established the kingdom of Judah. And obviously, like, calling that king the king of the house of David was significant um, and was a valid way to re reference this king. So Ahaziah is being described as being from the line of David on these fragments. This discovery was really exciting in the archaeological world because until this point, King David was only mentioned in the Bible. There was no archaeological evidence for his existence in the record. Initially, only one fragment, which described the military defeat, was discovered, leaving many scholars skeptical. But the following year, two more fragments were discovered in the two other locations. 
Archaeologists believe that the stella was broken into pieces since it was erected and the pieces used in a building project, presumably by Hebrew workers. This explains the multiple locations and the deep burial of the pieces. So we have here um, what the whole Tel Dan stella actually reads. Um, There are blank spots where we're not able to translate it, um, but I will read what we know. So it starts with this. Um, Blank and cut blank. My father went up blank fighting against Ab blank. And my father lay down. He went to his father's. And the king of Israel penetrated into my father's land. And Hadad made me myself king. And Hadad went in front of me, and I departed from blank of my kings. And I killed two powerful kings who harnessed 2,000 chariots and 2,000 horsemen. I killed Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel. And I killed Akaziahu, son of Joram, king of the house of David. And I set blank their land blank other blank and Jeru led over Israel blank siege upon blank That's a little spotty. A little broken up there. But there are some really specific names in there. So for the biblical parallel of this, you can check out 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 7 to 15. This passage tells the story of how Hazael became king of Syria, which is an interesting contrast to what the fragment says, um, which you'll recall says, and Hadad made me myself king. In 2 Kings chapters 8 and 9, we continue reading the story of this historical battle. King Joram um, of Israel was the son of Queen Jezebel, who you'll probably remember was the evil wife of King Ahab, um, who was also an evil king. So Ahab didn't stand up for God, and Jezebel brought in all of these worshipers of um, Baal. The prophet Elisha anointed the then commander of the Israelite army, Jehu, as the new king of Israel, while Joram was still reigning over Israel. So Elisha anoints Jehu and then tells him to go and kill King Joram, actually take the throne from him. So Jehu and his men do this, and they end up also killing King Ahaziah since they were allies and they were in the same place at the same time. And they both went out to meet Jehu, and then Jehu killed Joram, and Ahaziah was there, so he killed him as well. You can read all this in the biblical account if you want to check it out for yourself. The biblical account goes on to tell how Jehu killed Jezebel, you know, the evil queen, took over the throne, and then strayed from the commands of God, just kind of like all the other kings. Because of this, God allowed Israel to experience defeat at the hands of King Hazael, losing a lot of their territory. And you can find the rest of that story in 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. So on this Tel Dan fragment, or all the different fragments, we have the Syrian king claiming that he killed these two kings. And technically he did defeat Israel, but he himself was not the one to kill the two kings. Yeah, so sometimes we look at something like that. Like I kind of looked at this and I was like, oh, wait a second, the Bible doesn't agree with this historical account. But this historical extra biblical account is coming from 
the enemy. And so what we have here is the king who did take, he did take land from Israel. He did defeat them. Um, but Israel had this political unrest happening within their own nation. So while he is going out to like make war against Israel, while they are battling, one of Israel's own takes out the kings. And so what the enemy king does is he just takes credit for this because he, of course, is wanting to make himself look good in the eyes of his own nation. So to me, this doesn't really strike me as that out there because you would, you would have this and we still have this in the world today, you know, like a a king or a leader might not directly do the thing that, that they're taking credit for, but they're going to take credit for it anyway to make themselves look good and to build up their reputation in the eyes of their citizens. It's all about boasting. Yeah. And that's what I see here. So Um, No, he didn't actually kill these two kings himself, but he took credit for it. And he was taking land from Israel and ended up defeating um, or not defeating. But he he had several victories over Israel during the reigns of these two kings and then their successor, Jehu. The interesting thing to me about this, this whole Dan Stella or Stella is that it has all of these names that are in the Bible. And it's inscribed and all of them like on the same three fragments. And that to me is just a really great further evidence that not only did the Israelites exist at that time, but they were important enough to put on a victory Stella. Um, and that shows just, yes, this was not just a tiny little podunk town, but they actually had a fighting force that was worth conquering because of the land. Um, so yeah, the accounts might not agree, but the point of what we're trying to make here is that archaeology supports the fact that these characters existed in history as they are written in the Bible. Okay, so now we're going to move on to our third event in the Old Testament that we are able to prove really happened with archaeology. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 verses 1 through 4, there's a story where um, a city in Israel is placed under siege. So we're going to read that together. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He lay siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to wage war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. They gathered a large group of people who blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. So we're going to focus on what this passage says about the streams and the water. So the story of Hezekiah's tunnel starts when Hezekiah, who is king of the southern kingdom of Judah, is entrapped by the approaching army of the Assyrians. So because Jerusalem is on a hill, the water sources could actually be pretty scarce. In that time, when an invading army went to war against a city, they would attack in a siege and starve out the city because back then they didn't have big military artillery or technology. They had scare tactics. Yes. This means that they would force the population to stay within the city walls and wait for either the population to die or just become so weak that they were conquerable. Or the sieging army would just eventually leave and give up. 
So King Hezekiah knew that they needed a reliable water water source for the city to have any chance of surviving the invading army. Um, Just to give you some perspective, Assyria was like the Nazis or like ISIS. Like they are one of the most brutal um, nations in the ancient Near East. They had a very long standing um, kingship. Um, They actually had Israel as a vassal state for a while, which means like Israel would pay tribute in in exchange for Assyria's protection. And so Hezekiah has actually said, you know what, I'm not going to be a vassal state anymore. He's taken down all of the high places and all of the other idols and and temples and rededicated the temple to the Lord. So because of this, he knew that Israel, or um, Judah rather, didn't have the opportunity to win if they didn't have a reliable water source. Their water comes from the Gihon Spring, which is up um, past Jerusalem that flows down. Um, And so when we read in the passage in 2 Chronicles, there's all these streams that flow off into the valley. And so they stop up all of these streams so that the army can't, the Assyrian army can't have access to them. And then they divert the water from the Gihon spring and they actually dig a tunnel. So he, he puts two different teams and they dig from each at each end. And it's not even a straight line. This is a winding thing. And they dig and dig and dig. And then they meet in the middle and which is actually, it's an amazing feat of engineering. Even now we don't quite know how they did it. It's pretty incredible. So the tunnel connects the Gihon Spring with the Pool of Siloam in the old city of David. It goes down through the city. Like it's, this, this thing is 100 cubits or 100 feet underground through rock. It's really, really cool. In 1880, there was an inscription that was found six meters from the end of one of the tunnels, of the, of the tunnel, and it reads, quote, And this is the story of the tunneling. While each crew worked toward the other, and while there were still three cubits to cut, the voice of a man was heard calling to his counterpart, for there is a break in the rock on the right, and on the day of breaking through, the miners hewed each man toward his fellow, pickaxe against pickaxe, and the water flowed from the spring to the reservoir, 1,200 cubits, and the height of the rock above the stone cutter was 100 cubits." Okay, so the, this passageway is 1,750 feet long, and you can actually walk it now. Um, so the inscription here says 1,200 cubits. Cubits is about 18, 18 inches, and it is 100 f- cubits underground. So it's pretty deep. Um, even now, we have trouble making this work with our modern technology, and so it's just amazing that these people so long ago could make these tunnels meet in the middle. We actually know the spot where they met in the middle and they're like bang on. It's incredible. I want to go there someday. This is Bethany's, I'm putting this on Bethany's bucket list, walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. And so this tunnel was actually like lost to history. It's called Hezekiah's tunnel, but it was lost. It was rediscovered in 1837. Um, The reason why we bring this up is because you can go through this now. I actually know people who have walked through this tunnel from one end to the other. And it's incredible that God has protected the nation of Judah during this time when they were under attack from Assyria. It's not the first time either. God also sent an avenging angel with sickness and killed like thousands, tens of thousands of Assyrians. But this specific example, we have this archaeological evidence for um, as Hezekiah honored God with his life and his kingship and 
God honors that and protects him from the Assyrian king. For myself, archaeology is not something that I have dug into really deeply um, or really thoroughly because it's not really something that I personally feel the need to validate in order to trust scripture. But what I think is really cool is that there are several different ways that we can validate scripture, whether it's fulfilled prophecy, whether it's Um, science, whether it's um, archaeological evidence, whether it's just reasoning and logic in in terms of apologetics. I think it's so cool that God has validated his word to his people in so many different ways because different people need different types of evidence to be convinced sometimes. Um, And so I really appreciate that Although archaeology isn't necessarily my thing, I so appreciate that it is out there and that there are so many people studying it and actually are able to validate ancient events in the Bible um, through, you know, a modern, through modern science and modern archaeology. And I just, I think that that's such a blessing that we live in an age where we have all this evidence for the scriptures and then when we are sharing with unbelievers, we're able to point to some of these things and say, look, the Old Testament is valid and it's historically accurate. And I just think that that's such a blessing. So I, when I was at school, I took two different archaeology classes. Um, The first one I took online and I don't do so well in online classes. So I decided to take it again and get a better grade. And I took that one in person. And so I got the opportunity to go through the material twice with two different professors And I, this is kind of my thing. I do love learning about this. And it was just so encouraging to hear stories about from my professor who's been on digs in Israel and actually dug at Hasor. And um, to hear the conviction of him actually seeing it was just, you know, it's just neat and special. And so for me, I look at these stories and yes, it's God providing, um, evidence and validity for the Bible, but it's also just shows me that this, this is real. This happened. A lot of the time we look at events of the Bible and maybe we grew up reading them as stories. Like we'll do, like we have a story Bible and, um, and then you read different stories in their fiction. And so sometimes as a kid, you can get those mixed up. It, it was a good reminder for me when I think of the archaeological record and how the Bible is in that, is that, no, this is real. These are real people. This is real places, real times. We have real actual, um, like, rubble that we can dig through and find these names on. And we've gone through three examples here, but there are, there are numerous other examples through different points of time in the Bible's history um, that you can look at. There's really... There's a plethora. There's a lot. You can go for for a very long time. And so if this is your thing, um, we have a resource for you, one that was pretty helpful. Um, it's called the Biblical Archaeology Society, and you can find that at biblicalarchaeology.org. 
That is the end of our episode. Thank you so much for listening. A little short and sweet one. If you have any questions or something that stuck out to you that you um, was really exciting to learn, we would love to hear about that and how this episode has impacted you. You can find us at thrivetheology.com or you can visit us on Instagram. Um, we would love to get in touch with you. We hope you have a great day. Thanks for listening. Bye.